Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn with me to 1 John chapter 2? 1 John chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 12 through 17 this morning, uh, where John gives us another contrast. He likes to use these in teaching us what God wants us to know. That's why we call this the verses verses, the series. And in this contrast, we're going to have a gauge, uh, again, regarding the reality of our faith. It's a way to see, uh, am I really in Christ? Is my life evident of that? But also a guide as how to live out our faith. All right, so what genuine faith in Jesus Christ looks like in real world applications. Before we take a look at that command that's in verses 15 to 17, um, John's going to do what he so often does. He can't help but go very long without reminding us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole reason we're even able to follow that command or obey that command. And we've sung about it this morning and we're going to read about it here. And so let's begin by reading and, and praying that the Holy Spirit will help us to recognize this truth and to respond to it however he directs this morning. Lord, uh, as we look into your word, I pray that uh, you would do just that, that you would take it and your Holy Spirit would illuminate its truth to us, uh, that if there's areas in our life that need alteration, that need to be changed, that you'd empower that change, that you'd help us to respond even right now this morning, uh, so that we can go out of here different than we came in here. there would be no higher praise to offer you than that. It's only because of Jesus Christ that we would even have such capability. So, Lord, that's our prayer this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read verses 12 to 17 of 1 John 2. It says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. In these first few verses, 12 and 13 and 14, uh, John calls us to live by gospel promises. He focuses on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, the first thing he gives us before giving us that command, this contrast that has a command in verses 15 to 17, uh, God uses John to give us a very necessary understanding, a context for our capability to obey that command in verses 15 to 17. First of all, he gives us a unifying message in verse 12. I write unto you, little children. We all are that. You might think, well, no, I'm, I'm 90. 
I'm 40. You know, you're all little children in this, uh, in, in this description. Uh, what, what that word is in Greek, little children, is technia. It means you little born ones. You little born ones. And I write unto you, you little born ones, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. All right, for his name's sake. So it's a unifying message. It's for every person that's trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. If you're, if you're four, if you're 40, if you're 90. Uh, you little born ones, I'm writing this to you. He gives us purposes. John likes to constantly remind us. We, we've already seen two different times, uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, um, this is why I'm writing to you. And so far, they've all been the same. Even here, the same message, not a different message. Why is he writing them? He wants us to know that our sins are forgiven. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, trusted in the person and work of Christ, we use that term a lot, that he is God's son, he is God in the flesh, and that he died for your sins, that his, that's his work for you on your behalf. If you are trusting that to have a relationship with God, to have eternal life, you are these little born ones, and this is why he's writing to us. He's wanting to remind us, this is very basic gospel truth. You might be like, Jason, I know that. I mean, I, I know that. We can't ever remind ourselves too often. That's why we've been singing this. You cannot exhaust the, the knowledge of that. It, yes, it's basic gospel truth. Is it a beautiful gospel truth to you? Your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. It's a blessed gospel truth. That's what David said in Psalm 32. He said, blessed are those whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquities are forgiven. Blessed there meaning happy. Ha are you happy this morning that your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake? I am. John's saying before I explain to you how you're going to live out this faith, right? Don't ever, don't ever lose the wonder that your sins have been forgiven you. That you have Jesus Christ. That he died for your sins. Then there's this little phrase there for his name's sake. This, that's when this even gets more beautiful. I mean, when we really grab a hold of the understanding of the gospel, why are our sins forgiven us? Is it because God looked down and said, Jason, he's a worthy person. He deserves, he deserves my grace. There's no such thing. That's not grace if I deserved it. That's not why he forgave my sins. Why did he forgive my sins? For his name's sake. To him be all the glory. Now, yes, it was evidence of his love for me, and if you trusted Christ, it's definitely evidence of his love for you. But the whole reason he did that was to bring glory to himself. That we'd sing here thousands of years later and give praise to him. That one day we'll sing for eternity, giving praise to him for what he's done for us. This is what Isaiah tells us. We're saved not because we are good. <laughs> We're saved because he is good. Say because he's good. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 43, 25. He tells us why would God go to such great lengths to redeem me, to reconcile me to relationship with him. This is what Isaiah says, Isaiah 43, 25. God says, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. That's why I do it. Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? That's what we did when we lived in sin. That's what we did when we rebelled. He says, I will not give my glory to another. So ultimately, this is why the gospel's beautiful, but John's stressing something here in that last phrase, for his name's sake. He's stressing something that makes it even more beautiful because my sin did. It profaned his name. My sin stole his glory. So God sent Jesus to die in my place. He sent Jesus to die for my sin that I may have forgiveness. I can't think of anything that's more beautiful, blessed, even if it's basic, 
I'll, I'll dwell on that. That'll be my song. Isn't that what we, we sing? This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Because of this, my sins are forgiven for his name's sake. That's the unifying message that John gives here. Then he goes into a distinct message, all right, uh, a unique message. Now John gives his purpose for writing this letter, again reiterating the same purpose in 1-4, that your joy would be full, the same purpose in 2-1, that you don't sin. All right, now he gives it to some distinct demographics in the, the church community. Are you glad that we are distinct? Now the early service, it's difficult getting up with kids, right? So most of us here are um, more advanced in age, all right, most of us. But the church is made up of distinct demographics. Praise the Lord for that. That he doesn't just save one type of people. He doesn't save one ethnicity. He doesn't save one, um, one economic status. He, he saves young and old. And, and so he gives his purpose for writing to distinct demographics, same purpose. Look at that one in verse, uh, 12, uh, verse 13. I write unto you fathers. And we've got some fathers here. I, we're not talking about a masculine thing. Uh, this is a metaphor for maturity, all of these he's going to give us. Because we're in different stages of maturity in our walk with Christ. And so he's saying, I write unto you fathers and, and mothers, all right? people who have known Christ for a very long time. And he says, uh, I'm going to write uh, this to you because you, the whole purpose uh, of me saving you is not for you to stay as little born ones. That's how you begin. Praise the Lord. I hope you've begun. But uh, God has this design that you'd grow in your intimacy with him, that you'd grow in your maturity, in your faith. So this is his right reason here. I write unto you, fathers, because, verse 13, you have known him that is from the beginning. John's saying, you know what, you may be at the end of your Christian maturity spectrum. You've trusted Christ, been saved for 60, 70 years. Praise God if that's the case. Don't ever lose your wonder at the gospel. Daily, throughout the day, you should be uh, reminded uh, that your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Don't forget that for a second, because it's very necessary for the furthering of your faith. I don't think there's anybody that would fit into this demographic here this morning that says, I got it. I got, you know how I know that? You're here. You want to grow in your faith. Uh, you've come to worship God. Uh, you, you, you're reading his word. You're praying to him. You're serving him. So you want to grow in your faith, and you can't do that without constantly being reminded of, of why you're even doing what you're doing. This is why John presents the gospel to them. Never forget, never forget your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. That reality, it's your freedom from the penalty of sin. You're going to heaven. You will live with him forever. Amen to that. But it's also freedom from the power of sin right here and now. It's why you can say no to sin and continue your growth in Jesus Christ. It's going to enable you and empower you to do that. He repeats that again in verse 14 where he says, I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. And he wants you to remember there's nothing. All the things in this world that you might gain, all the things in this world you might value, there's nothing more valuable than the fact that you have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. All right, now he moves on to a, a different one. Verse 13, I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Well, that's a blessed truth too, isn't it? You've overcome the wicked one. Now you might be thinking, Jason, that's great, but I, sometimes I sure don't feel like it. I don't feel like I've overcome the wicked one, but there's a struggle. You know, temptations are sometimes yielded to. I don't feel like an overcomer. But this is what he, he says here, young men, Young, young people, I think we'd probably, most of us would fit in this demographic, most of us. As far as our maturity, 
we're, we're young in the faith. Uh, the majority of his church is probably here, no longer infants, not quite yet fathers, all right? And, and, and what he's saying in all of these words here in, in verses uh, 12 and 13 and 14 is this. If you look at the, the verbs, they're all past tense. In, in, the, in the Greek, they're past perfect tenses. They are completed. They're as good as done. And he's saying, I know you might feel like the, there are some battles that are lost, but you have overcome. It is done. The battles might be lost, but the war isn't. If you trusted Christ as Savior, uh, your relationship with him is that level of, of sure. Uh, look down at verse 14 where he restates it again. Uh, and he says, I read, have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. It's so essential that we understand the gospel if we're going to have any hope of living in that overcome status. He's done it for us. That's what the cross of Christ purchased. Not just that we be able to go to heaven, but that we be able to live here and now as little Jesus Christ's, as his disciples. That's what Christian means, little follower of Christ, living just like him, living in uh, overcoming victory just like him. That's why he writes this. The war has been won. I can't help but think of Gideon. We studied him a little bit ago in our college and career Sunday school class. I, I go there. I know I don't belong age-wise, right? But that's where I go. And we studied Gideon a couple weeks back, and um, you might have too, because I know some of us are on the same curriculum anyway. But that judge, back in Judges 6, uh, Israel had been taken captive because of the rebellion against God. They were under oppression, under persecution, and yes, they wanted deliverance, and they were ready to turn to God. And uh, we find Gideon there, and he's, he's doing a good thing. He's threshing grain so that people can uh, eat, his people can eat, but he's hiding because they don't want them to eat, right? So he's hiding, he's doing the right thing, but he's hiding, doing it kind of secretive. And an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, hey, mighty man of valor. You think Gideon really felt like a mighty man of valor? Hiding, what just me, little, little old Gideon. I'm not even from a prominent family. Uh, and this is what God tells him. Look, you know what, in one sense, if you're saying, I don't feel like an overcomer, Jason, I don't feel, it said I'm strong and the word of God abideth me, I don't feel strong. In one sense, you're not wrong. You're not strong apart from Christ, but in Christ, but in Christ Jesus, he says you are strong. Because you've been born again to new life in Christ, you are strong. That's what Alyssa's saying about, that's what the choir is saying about, that's what we all sing about this morning. Faith is the victory. We're gonna get there in a second. All right, because, uh, because Christ overcame, that's what Alyssa's saying, he's risen from the dead, you have overcome. You've risen from that old life. That old man is, is dead, and, and if, he, if he tries to get up, you need to kill him. That's what Scripture says, all right? This is, uh, let's go forward to uh, 1 John 5, all right? We're going to get there in a couple of weeks, but let's look at it today. I'll, we'll get a sneak preview here, uh, because I don't want to take uh, even this passage we're going through today out of context, but look at it in the whole chapter, in the whole book, in, you know, against all of Scripture. But in 1 John 5, 4, it says this, for whatsoever or whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our what? Faith. It's faith that is our, our overcoming. It's faith in Jesus, not in what we can do, but in what he did for us. And, and my living in him and trusting him, that's where strong faith comes from. This, uh, when I've come to Christ, all right, by faith, 
Uh, one of my favorite verses is in Romans 10, 17. And I, I've, I've known that verse a long time. It wasn't until about a year ago that God really was like, this is for now. It's not just for then. Because I, I don't know if some of you have ever, um, there's this thing called the Romans Road, and it can be helpful to, to show someone the gospel, to tell them what the gospel is. Romans 3, 23, Romans 5, 8, Romans 6, 23, Romans 10, 9, and 10. And then sometimes we'll add on Romans 10, 17. It says this, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So it does. That's how we come to faith in Christ. None of you woke up one day and said, I'm going to be a Christian today. I mean, not without the word of God. Somebody told you the gospel. Uh, you might have read the gospel. A uh, Sunday school teacher, a parent, somebody shared the gospel with you. That's why you came to faith in Christ. Faith cometh by hearing. There's only one way, hearing by the word of God. So we're brought to faith in Jesus Christ by God's word. How do you continue in faith? The same way you came to faith. How do you live in overcomer status the same way you came to faith? That verse, I love Romans 10, 17, but for so long I relegated it to the coming to faith uh, part of Christianity. I don't think God's word does that. It says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So how am I going to continue in faith? How am I going to grow from a little born one into a young man, into a father? How am I going to do that? By the word of God. And this is what he's going to tell us here in 14 when he he talks about that you are strong. Why? Because you're just really strong? You've got a lot of fortitude? No. You're strong because the word of God abideth in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Does it? I hope so. I pray that you abide in God's word so it can abide in you. That's where strong faith comes from. You know, Israel is such a beautiful picture when they got delivered from Egypt in that Exodus uh, passage. Uh, of scripture where uh, God took them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt and he delivered them. Didn't always make the wisest choices. Had to wander around for 40 years because of that, right? But do you think that they knew they were free? I mean, they weren't making bricks anymore. They weren't. I mean, they knew God had delivered them. They celebrated even, even today, the Jewish people, and Passover and the, the Feast of Booze and all these. It points back to that. Just like the gospel, should, we should always be celebrating it because it's the beginning of our relationship with Christ, and we need to be reminded of it. And, you know, but sometimes they did forget. Sometimes they did. It was when pain, difficulty, it was when pleasures of this world uh, competed for their affections. And sometimes they even said, a couple times, they said, would to God that we were back in Egypt. And I wonder how many times do I do that when, when I follow what, John's going to warn us again here in verses 15 to 17, loving the world. How many times do I go, would to God that, that I, it, I would be living before the gospel? I can't think, I mean, we never would say that, but sometimes we do by our actions. And then he's got one final demographic there at the end of um, verse 13. He says, I write unto you little children because you have known the Father. You might be thinking, well, I thought he already wrote to us. This is a different Greek word for children. The first one was technia, you little born ones. This is talking about kids a little older, those who are in school. All right, and so we've got that demographic, and he says, I write unto you, little children, all right, because you have known the Father. Just like, just like the end of the maturity spectrum fathers, you know, not something completely different from the beginning of verse 12. Your sins are forgiven for you uh, for his name's sake because you know Christ, and you know the Father because you know Christ. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So vital gospel truth he's given to us in here in verses 12 and 13. Beautiful, joy-infusing truth, but there's more. This is the foundation we've got to remind ourselves of every day, and you're designed to use it. Not just dwell on it, but use it and embrace it 
embrace the reality of the gospel so that you can grow. So you can grow into overcoming young men. And so you can grow into uh, established and consistent victory fathers. So there's the necessary foundation, right? But now uh, we are called to further our faith, to live by gospel promises, uh, by living with gospel priorities. You know, the message that we love, it's always going to manifest itself in how we live. And he gives us a negative side of the contrast first in verse 15. And he says, don't love the world. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. He's saying little born again ones, uh, dearly loved ones. And again, here in the Greek, it's now it's changed tense. It's not past. It's not done. It's a present tense uh, continuing. And he says, don't go on loving the world. That's what you used to do before you came to Christ. Don't go on loving the world now. That is not what somebody who has a relationship with Jesus does. Maybe from time to time, competing affections come in and we yield to temptation. But you do not persist. Somebody who has a relationship with Jesus does not persist in loving the world. They don't, not to continue it, but there are times. There's times when we allow our hearts to be drawn by competing affections that promise something and never deliver it. And he's warning us against that here. All right, um, look at the evidence that we're either in Christ or out of Christ. He says in verse 15, if any man love the world, the lover of the Father, the love of the Father is not in him. If any man love the world, go on in persistent love for the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that word of there in Greek it's to and it, a T-O-U and it means um, it can mean either of the love of the Father is not in him like you don't know God's love if you live this way but it can also be translated for the love of the, the love for the Father is not in him. Like in how you're living it's evident that you really don't love God. All right we can even say love to the Father is not in him. All right, that's the evidence he's saying. He said, regardless of what the false teachers that this church was struggling with, regardless what they say, that you can live any way you want, uh, but as long as you profess Jesus Christ, John's saying that's not the case. This has been his use of contrast over and over again all the way through this chapter. He's saying a persistent, a continual love for the world proves that you might be a professor of Jesus Christ, but you truly don't possess relationship with him. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought I'm supposed to love the world. Didn't Jesus love the world? That's what John 3, 16 says. He did, didn't he? Jesus loves the world. And we're called to live up that, that love. Uh, the world here, uh, the Greek word cosmos, ryri, uh, some of you use ryri, uh, study Bibles. I think Tommy does, Ray does. Uh, I have one. He, he defined it really well. So Charles Ryrie uh, said this, uh, the world here, when we see the, the word world here, is an organized system that's headed by Satan that leaves God out of our lives. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about people, like not loving people. Don't, of course he wants you to love people he commanded you to. Uh, he's not even saying don't love the world. I, there's parts of this world I love. You all see my social media posts. I love going to Jones Lake. I love going to Suggs Mill Gameland out by me. I love seeing nature. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the world as this organized system that's currently headed by Satan that leaves God out of our lives. Now, I emphasize that. Leaves God out of our lives. That's what happened back in Genesis 3. That's what even Adam did. Left God out. They set out. That's what's happening in, in January 26, 2020. Overall, in this world, don't, doesn't that, isn't that a fitting description? People leaving God out. We want him out of our schools, out of our government, out of some churches. We want him out of our lives. I want him out of my choices. I want him out of my desires. I want him out of my future. That 
That's love for the world, as John's defining it here. Isaiah 30, um, you don't have to turn there if you want, you can. I'm just going to read it for you. Isaiah 30, this is what Israel was doing, why they, uh, they went into captivity. But in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 9 through 11, what a sad description. And I, I pray that um, we don't ever allow this to be true of us. And if it is, we would repent. But in Isaiah 30, verse 9, God says, This is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord. They say to their seers or to their prophets or preachers, See not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things. Speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Unfortunately, I think that's a pretty good description of what goes on even in a lot of churches. I don't want to hear truth. <laughs> Just tell me things that will make me happy. Tell me things that everything's good. And this is what was happening way back then, way back then and when, when Isaiah was prophesying to Israel, warning them uh, to repent. In verse 11, he says, this is what you say. Get out of the way. Turn aside out of the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. That's scary. I mean, is, that what, is that what we're doing? Get out. Cause the Holy One to cease from before me. Scary environment to be in. Isaiah, or back in 1 John uh, chapter 2 here, now he's going to describe what love for the world looks like a little bit more. In verse 15, he says, uh, love not the world, right? But now in verse 16, he's going to describe it a little bit better. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Again, this was Satan's trick back in Genesis 13. This is what he tempted Adam and Eve with. We have this in Scripture. He really has no other game. This is what he's coming at you with when he tempts you to love the world. This is what he comes at you with. Listen to this, uh, this, listen to this verse from Genesis 3, when Eve fell. And when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, there's your lust of the flesh, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and a tree desired to make one wise, pride of life. And here we are, even now, just like back then, all right, saying, get out, God. That's what she did. That's what Adam did, all right? And that's what we do when we have a love for the world. That is love for the world. Look at the effect. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, verse 17, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. It passes away. That's what Second Peter, when we were going through that a couple weeks ago, uh, he's saying, all of this is going to be gone, <laughs> all of this, one day. Why would you love it? Why would you live for it? Why would you value it? I was digging around, and I found this. You know what that is? It's a laptop. Pretty old laptop. Jackson, look at this. Have you ever seen a laptop? All right. Have you ever seen one like this, though? All right, feel that. <laughs> I got on the scale this morning. I'm not going to tell you what the scale read, but I'll tell you what the change was from when I was holding this and when I wasn't. 14 pounds. <laughs> 14 pounds. Bought this in 2000. About 2000. I was in the Army. We didn't have a computer. Uh, I was leaving uh, to go train down here. She was still up in, in Minnesota. They wouldn't move her down until I'd finished, and um, we needed something to communicate with, so she bought this. I think we, I'm pretty sure we paid like $1,800 to $2,000 back then. <laughs> 1.7 gigahertz fancy 386 megabytes of ram 20 gig hard drive i mean I, there's a terabyte flash drive that's like 20 dollars it passes away doesn't it 17 years passes away why would i 
Why would I place value? I just say that for thanks. That's my struggle. I think it's a lot of our struggle. Because we're watching a football game, it says, you need this in a commercial. Love this. You deserve this. And the loss of the eyes and the loss of the flesh and the pride of life can invade my life and it can compete for my affection. That should be for him alone. But how do I protect against it? How, do I, how did I come to believe that that's not what I should value and he's what I should value? I came to it by his word. Look at love for the Father. Now, it's not implied. John doesn't say here, love the Father. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you should love the Father, right? It's, it's, it's commanded elsewhere in Scripture. Let's go back to the source, right? We did this last week uh, when I said, do you know where John got this from? He got it from Jesus. Same thing here. Back in John 14, in that same upper room discourse, right before he gave his life, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 21, he that hath my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loveth me. Verse 23, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. John 15, 11, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. I've spoken these things to you so that my joy might remain in you and your joy might remain full. Sound familiar? Right words from Jesus, words from John. I'm telling you these things because I want you to have full joy. This is not going to bring you full joy. It sure doesn't bring me any joy right now. I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. It came in handy for a sermon illustration, but apart from that, no joy there. There's joy here. There's joy with him. This is where our joy should be found. Let's go back again to 1 John 5. Can I read the verse right before that? We went to 1 John 5, 4. Listen to 1 John 5, 3. For this, this is the love of God. This is the love, again, the word too. This is the love for God. This is evidence of God's love in you, and this is evidence of your love for God, that we keep his commandments. That's the opposite of love for the world. That's love for the Father. And his commandments are not grievous. That's not, they're not designed to squash you. That was a lie of Satan back in Genesis 3, and it's his lie to you now. Do this, it'll make you happy. Never has, maybe momentarily, caused a lot of grief, a lot of destruction. All right. I've given you this command for your joy, for fullness of joy. And what does love for the, uh, God the Father provide? Again, back now in verse uh, 17, 1 John 2, 17, the world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Do you see how he described faith there? He that doeth the will of God. Yes, it's believing and trusting in Christ, but eventually that trust in Christ, it's going to be lived out in your life. Yes, it's, it's going to be trust in Christ and singing on Sunday, but it's going to be living out your faith Monday through Saturday where it's evident that you do not have a love for the world, not a persistent one. And so we've got the beginning and the now and the end. The beginning is our love for God because in response to his love for us and the cross, we got the now. We, look, we live in a tension, a tension where things are trying to pull our love away. And until we get to glory, that's not going to change. We've got to fight. All right, but we're overcomers. That's what he said. You have overcome. Live in the victory, the reality that the cross has bought for you. I don't know of any other way to gain victory or triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it. Like, I don't want it anymore. Because you have a superior satisfaction in Jesus. That's, I mean, I've, I've battled things. There's been sins in my life that I've battled, and I didn't know I'd ever get victory over them. And then one day, I did. And I'm like, man, I really wish I could tell people how to do this. Wouldn't you like that secret? He gives it to us. It was no secret. 
I realized I had been spending more time in his word. I've been spending more time with him in prayer. My love, that just, just doing those things created a greater love that when I saw things that used to tempt me, uh, I didn't want them anymore. I had new affections. I had new aversions. No ambivalence anymore. No just coasting through the Christian life. No, Jesus, the superior satisfaction in Jesus. How do your tastes change? How do you get that? Well, how did you learn of it to begin with? Again, through the word of God, through communicating with him. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to change your love. C.S. Lewis, you know I like quoting him, all right? But um, he said, aim for heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Aim for earth, you get neither. You get neither. You don't get anything. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? What are you aiming at this morning? That's what I want to ask you. In, in, um, in the New Testament, whenever it talks about sin, uh, the word there for sin is amartia, and it means missing the mark. I don't, I'm not a bow hunter. I tried shooting an arrow once. It didn't go well. All right, but it's like shooting an arrow and not even hitting the target. That's what sin is. Missing the mark completely. What are you aiming at this morning? Are you aiming at the things of the world? Are you aiming at stuff that's just going to pass away uh, right now, sitting in the back of a closet, been there for 10 years, and it's going to turn to dust and not even exist anymore? Is that what you're aiming at? Or what are you aiming at? Are you aiming at love for the Father that's going to proclaim his glory for eternity? Are you going to aim at God's design for joy? Relationship with him that's lived out by obedience to his commands? Or are you going to aim for Satan's offer of joy? God's offer, never failing, 100% perfect track record of joy. Satan's offer, never fulfilling, never once in the history of mankind is it fulfilled. What are you aiming at? And so this morning, we're going to sing an invitation song in just a minute, but my question is, based on this text, has love for this world invaded your superior satisfaction for God? You can choose to get it out this morning, or you can choose to keep telling God to get out. You know, you and Adam and Eve, and we weren't the only ones that faced this, this allure. Jesus did. Do you remember it? When he was tempted, Satan said, turn these stones into bread. Hadn't eaten in 40 days. It was the lust of the flesh. And Satan takes him, he says, you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms now. Was he going to have them one day? He was going to have them. He said, "I'll I'll give it to you now lust of the eyes. Takes him to a pinnacle. Throw yourself off, Jesus. Show, show the world who you are, your power. It says in scripture, it says he'll give his angels charge concerning Satan even using scripture to tempt Christ. Pride of life. All three points he was tempted in. But what did he choose to do? He chose to obey. He chose to overcome. He chose to believe there is better joy than anything this thing is promising right now. There's better joy. So Hebrews 12, 2 says, Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and now he is seated on the right hand of God. A better joy was there. And how did he do it? How did he resist? How did he overcome Satan? Every single time. It is written. It is written. It is written. This. This is the overcoming. Has the Holy Spirit used God's word this morning to identify things, competing loves in your life? I pray that at this time when we sing, I... Uh, have decided to follow Jesus, you would, you would confess those and repent. He's waiting to forgive, to bring you back, to give you overcomer victory. Has the Holy Spirit used God's word to remind you this? You have to abide in it if you're going to be that overcomer. This is your strength, not in yourself. 
and maybe you need to uh, confess that. There has been a lack of reliance on this, and I need to commit to relying on what you've given to me. However God's calling on you to respond this morning, I simply ask that you'd obey.